Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you doing today? Doing well, Robert. How are you? I am. I am doing good. I'm doing fine. Today we have a big show for everybody. Um, Jasmine's going to tell us a little bit about things that Daniel Cameron has been up to. There were just several kind of Daniel Cameron related stories that seem to be uh, you know him trying to get into the news or be in the news uh and stuff that's just going on with him that we thought would be worth discussing the stuff in this include um his reaction to uh, a lawsuit that the the fair the fairness campaign's been involved in for a long time uh an opinion that he issued about sb 150 uh, or his office issued about SB 150, uh, an issue, a, a situation with uh, public safety, and some other stuff he's been doing. So uh, Jazz was going to be telling us all about that. The Herald Leader released a pretty significant set of articles, one really big article about him. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that and what they were kind of driving at with that story to kind of just give you guys a little bit of the rundown and encourage you to, to check that out. And then also we have a significant number of quick hits to get to today. So without any further ado, Jasmine, what has Daniel Cameron been up to lately? Okay, so we have about like four little stories here. The first one is about a fairness ordinance case. And so Last year, a federal judge held that Chelsea Nelson, who was a Louisville wedding photographer, could not be forced by the city under the Fairness Ordinance to provide services for a same-sex wedding. And that case is on appeal at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. In light of a U.S. Supreme Court decision that held that a web designer did not have to design a website for same-sex couples, Attorney General Daniel Cameron sent a letter to Mayor Greenberg asking him to drop the city's appeal to overturn the district judge's ruling. Um, This case is scheduled to be argued at the Sixth Circuit very soon on July 28th. And Cameron says the appeal is an exercise in futility and a waste of taxpayer money in light of the SCOTUS decision. Mayor Greenberg um, declined that (laughs) Cameron's invitation, um, and he said that the city would continue to defend the fairness ordinance. Um, Nelson's lawsuit includes a freedom of religion claim, not just a freedom of speech claim, which makes it different from the case before the Supreme Court. So it's not the same case. Um, So there are reasons to proceed with the appeal and have it heard. And, it, you know, it's also scheduled to, to be argued in, in just a couple weeks. Um, so that's the first one. Daniel Cameron sending a letter to the mayor of Louisville um, asking the city to drop that appeal. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me a little bit like that that story or that that case that she's that, that she's making against the city is different, different enough from the one in front of the supreme court that having this be litigated would be worth it um and also just i mean i guess is it anything beyond just these two mayor greenberg and daniel cameron kind of just reiterating their positions on like lgbtq issues with mayor greenberg wanting more support and uh you know uh, equal protection for lgbtq people and daniel cameron wanting more like citing more on like the free speech freedom of religion for people who provide services is that just the best way to think about this yeah i mean that's what i think it is and and i mean this, daniel cameron sending this letter um 
is, you know, something that he can do as the attorney general, but certainly something that he doesn't have to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and that kind of like gets me into this this next story, um, which I, I think kind of goes the same way. So um, and this one is about an attorney general opinion on Senate Bill 150. So one of Daniel Cameron's assistants, attorney general, authored an attorney general opinion finding that Senate Bill 150, um, which is the anti-trans legislation, should be implemented as lawmakers intended um, and not according to the KDE guidance that would require one of the two bans due to the or language in the statute. Um, so... If you'll remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. The Kentucky Department of Education came out with new guidance about implementing Senate Bill 150. And the language in the statute has or instead of and language about um, two different um, policies that would be banned about like instruction that would be banned in schools um, and KDE has interpreted that to mean that one of those two would need to be implemented. And this attorney general opinion says, um, no, the attorney general's office believes it should be implemented as lawmakers intended and that both of them must be implemented. Um, and they basically make two points. The first that they're saying that the statute was using the disjunctive or like you can't do this or this. Um, is is point number one. And the second is that if read the way that KDE is interpreting it, the statute would be rendered meaningless and would lead to an absurd result not intended by the legislature. Um, so, of, of course, attorney general opinions um, are persuasive, but they're not binding authority. There are situations where um, an attorney general opinion will be like sought um, but then there will also be situations where um, the attorney general's office can offer guidance on like matters of importance. And, and um, they decided to weigh in here. So I think this is a, another situation where um, his office ha has chosen chosen to weigh in on something and and provide guidance um, in a way that that he wants to interpret. <laughs> yeah, this one needs, seems like it's even more abstract than the first one, like the fairness ordinance, at least that that was like a lawsuit involved here. This is like the AG, like telling a telling the uh, the KDE has who has already announced, like we're basically going to go against what the legislature did because they wrote the bill wrong. And the AG being like, oh, maybe don't do that. <laughs> Even though, like, that's obviously not, they're obviously not going to pay attention to what the attorney general has to say. So even more than the first one, this just seems to be about, like, signaling to people that he's supportive of SB 150 and would defend it as governor, I would feel like. Yeah, definitely. Um, then this next story is is kind of uh, new as of today. Um, Daniel Cameron released a 12 point plan for public safety. Um, and I, I didn't include all 12 points here because that that's a lot of points. Um, but it, it includes um, things like murder charges for drug traffickers. When someone dies, uh, the death penalty for police officer deaths a KSP post in Louisville, um, which that's something he talked about during the primary. 
um, opposing subpoena power for civilian review boards. Um, so essentially just a, a lot of like, you know, tough on crime type policies. Um, and, you know, I think that crime is something that people, you know, on both sides are concerned about that the average voter is concerned about. Um, and so um, maybe some, maybe some of the points of this plan, um, you know, are things that, that may be popular with some voters, um, but th they're definitely really harsh penalties. And, and there are things that, um, you know, there's been bipartisan criminal justice reform movements over the last, you know, decade or so that, have tried to move away from things like um, harsh sentencing for drug crimes and the death penalty and things like that. And this is um, moving back towards those things. Yeah. I mean, I guess the balance of politics in America basically just like eventually finds an equilibrium close to where it was before. Uh, and there was like kind of this moment where it seemed like there was this bipartisan kind of consensus that we had gone too far with tough on crime and even though not a lot of reforms if any reforms were really passed by the kentucky legislature um we are swinging back the other way and even like the republicans are pushing for them to e be even more harsh um it is really interesting the number of kind of louisville centric things that his plan has in place uh, he mentioned you know the civilian review boards which i mean i think that the only place where those are even really being discussed heavily is in louisville um you know putting a ksp post in louisville and i mean i think that this also just goes back to something that we've discussed lots of times before which is that like daniel cameron talks about crime in louisville and like his approach to crime in louisville to signal to folks outside of louisville uh about mm -hmm. something about his stance on crime and even if you're talking about voters in louisville the things that he's saying about louisville are not really targeted towards the people who actually have to live with the crime live with like in neighborhoods that have crimes committed within them um mostly just talking to people who live in other parts of the city who don't like that crime is occurring in their in their town so yeah, um, I agree with you that I think that a lot of people are going to agree with a lot of these things, but I think that they are mostly already pretty Republican. I think yeah. that for moderates who I do think Daniel Cameron has an opportunity to to attract on the issue of crime, I'm a little concerned for him. Well, that's a little concerned trolling, but I, I don't know. I wonder if maybe some of the things he's pushed go a little too far, like the death penalty for, for drug traffickers. Like, that seems kind of intense uh, and you know the murder charges for people who are drug like the, there's a lot of sort of like really really harsh going pretty far that i i wonder if it wouldn't be just a little bit too far for yeah people. death penalty for police officer deaths and then murder charges for right. for traffickers me. and that's the prosecuting drug traffickers for murder um, that's something that I think Texas has been doing and Daniel Cameron wants to follow Texas's lead there. Um, but, you know, one last thing that I'll note here is that not long ago, um, like 2017, 2018, um, just shortly before Daniel Cameron became the attorney general, he was part of the 
Kentucky Smart on Crime Coalition, which was like a bipartisan criminal justice reform coalition. Um, and he was actually like the spokesperson. And um, just goes to show you how much the political winds have shifted on that issue for sure. Yeah. Really unfortunate stuff, I think. I mean, and it, I just think, you know, whenever this comes back around, it's a good, a good, you know, reminder to if, if, the Republicans have come around on this issue, which they will probably again, you know, strike while the iron's hot because it won't stay hot forever. This isn't an issue that goes directly in one direction. People get in the mood to do criminal justice reform and you have to get it done then because they will turn the other direction and become very tough on crime before mm-hmm. you know it. Um, and we are likely facing a situation for the next, I don't know, who knows how long where conservatives will want to be much more harsh on crime. Um, than they were in the past five years. Um, and it's a little unfortunate that we didn't get more done in that time period. But yeah. yeah. And then the last thing um, I want to talk about is what Daniel Cameron is not up to. And that is going to Freedom Fest, which we just talked about, uh, I think, last week. Um, as it, Cameron's campaign said, as it turns out, we're going to be doing other campaign events that day in another region of the state. We plan to campaign in Northern Kentucky often between now and November 7th. Um, so like Robert talked about last week, Daniel Cameron was slated to be a guest at Eric Dieter's Freedom Fest in Northern Kentucky. Um, and now he is not going to be there. Um, and, and this came after some have called Dieter's out. Um, for using racial slurs and disparaging comments in a video. Cameron was asked by Austin Horn of the Herald Leader about this and asked if bowing out of Freedom Fest had to do with these racist comments um, and if he condemned them. And Cameron declined to do that and declined to even answer the question um, and told Austin Horn that he was more concerned about um, Andy Bashir not condemning the sisters of perpetual indulgence and the fact that Joel Pett, the cartoonist, works for Austin's newspaper. Um, and so Austin asked again, you know, do you condemn, you know, the comments that Eric Dieters has made? And, and he still said that he's concerned about Andy Bashir. Um, so he, he, it was just an odd response. Um, you can, you can really question. sense the feeling that he felt like he's really stepped in it with this one, um, which yeah. wasn't hard to predict, right? I mean, anybody that knows anything about Eric Dieters, which, I mean, Daniel Cameron ostensibly does. I, I, to me, last week, I felt like this was a calculated move by Daniel Cameron to like express support for Eric Dieters because mm-hmm. he felt like he had some people behind him, but it kind of feels like he's backed off of that very quickly, which makes me think maybe he didn't think it through all the way. Um, the responses to Austin Horn just seem insane. It's just like you condemn the man for not for using like the N word, like, just do that. That doesn't seem like it should be that hard to do. And he's just working really, really, really hard to not upset Eric Dieters anymore after he's basically canceled mm-hmm. his appearance. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, exactly. And and it just doesn't come off well. And I mean, trying to change the subject to old news about Andy Bashir and the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And I mean, I just don't think people care about 
that. I, I, I'm, there are people who do. There are definitely people who do. But there are people who wouldn't vote for Andy Bashir anyway, no matter what. Um, so I just don't think that this is coming across as, like, genuine. I mean, at the same time, he's like, oh, we're busy doing other things. Like, no, you're not. You, you canceled because it looked bad that you were going. Like, I don't know. Uh, it, it, it definitely, this is a pretty significant miscalculation. I don't know how much it's going to end up mattering. It's the, it's the middle of the summer. People aren't really paying that close of attention to things. But I do think it helps to set a narrative um, that may continue on into the fall. So we'll definitely see. Um, yeah, kind of funny that that happened that quickly, that he backed off of this event that fast. Yeah, and I think just from... From these stories and, and the kind of action that Daniel Cameron has taken, I think the like the way I'm thinking about his campaign right now is that, you know, it it's not it's not different in like policy or politically from the the primary campaign that Kelly Kraft was running necessarily, but it's just he's a lot more careful about the rhetoric and, and than she was. And so, you know, he's doing things like sending this letter to the mayor of Louisville and issuing this AG opinion. And he's going about it and saying like, well, this is just the law. You know, we're just following the law. Um, And so, but those policies are, are all the same things that, that she wanted to do. Um, But but she would get a little more wild and loosey goosey with yeah. how she talked about him, and and that turned people off. Yeah, and one thing about it is like she's running in a Republican primary and trying to make a big splash in a Republican primary, which is a much more conservative electorate, even in Kentucky, than a general elector and a general electorate, right? The general election, um, which is going to include moderates, independents, and Democrats. I think uh, you know I I don't know really like yes kelly craft definitely was much more like strident on issues like lgbtq rights and about uh you know being tough on crime or or whatever and daniel cameron like just issuing these sort of hey like writing a letter to, to craig greenberg and like issuing an opinion on sb 150 it just feels like it's go. It's like making your position known, but also not really taking that strong of a stance. Like everybody knows that these things aren't going to do anything. I think like that twelve point plan is probably the thing that is the most impactful, just because it kind of lays out like, hey, if I'm the governor, we're going to get really, really tough on crime. Um, which I mean, people who are motivated by that issue may find that very attractive. I, I do. I you know, not that I agree with them, but I, I kind of understand where they're coming from uh, with that campaign to strategy um but the then again like the the trying not to go to freedom fest is is kind of the other other side of that so i mean i don't know overall do you feel like his campaign is doing a good job so far i mean mixed to good to bad like how do you feel about uh, in the light of all these stories i don't know it's kind of hard it's always kind of hard for me to judge as as someone on the yeah. other side, yeah. I think, but probably, probably mixed. I th- I think that I think that some of this like tough on crime stuff will speak to people, like even some moderates, as will. Um, he's focused a lot on 
his faith and things like that. And I, I think that those kind of things might resonate as well um, with maybe like some moderate swing voters. But I, I do think this this Freedom Fest thing, I, I don't know how it ends up shaking out because I think like as people who pay close attention to politics, we see it as a pretty big like campaign misstep, like, you know, putting his, his names on the poster and he, and he says he's looking forward to it and, and now he's not going and um, he doesn't really have a good reason for not going and it doesn't look great. But I don't know if the average voter um, cares or pays attention to whether he's going to Freedom Fest or not. Oh, definitely. I don't think any. I, I think the number of people who are going to change their vote from Daniel Cameron to Andy Bashir or Daniel Cameron to other because of that decision is vanishingly small, close to zero. Um, the difference I think it makes is, you know, it's a net negative for his campaign to have said yes to this and then to have backed off. Of yeah. Um, I think the net negative is more along the lines of like, these are people who are a source of volunteers for your campaign. They're mm, a source yeah. of people who might potentially donate to your campaign. They're a sense of, source of, you know, whatever other sort of campaign infrastructure things. And also it sets a narrative about your campaign um, that maybe the person didn't care about Freedom Fest, but they heard about this Freedom Fest and they're like, huh, that's kind of weird. And then something else happens later where he kind of flip flops on something else that's a little bit minor, but that like is building on this narrative. It helps to set that set the stage there and the thing is the easiest thing in the world for him to have done would be to just completely ignore freedom fest to say uh, <laughs> yes i uh, i know what's going on there I, I mean we haven't really been invited if he starts talking to us we 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 you know we'll, we'll look at the invite when we get it or something like that and just ignore it and move forward and instead now you're answering questions about uh, do you decry eric dieter saying the n-word and having to deny that like that's mm -hmm. not a position you want to put yourself in um, right. Uh, and, and so I think, like, it is a misstep. I don't think it necessarily matters that much, except for in the way that it sets a narrative. I, I mean, I, in terms of how his campaign's going, I, I do know that you're correct in saying that, you know, it. there's no way for us to really be genuine and giving an honest opinion. But I just don't feel like anything he's saying is, like, really breaking through. I still feel like even the conservatives I'm talking about mm -hmm. are talking more about Andy Bashir, good or bad than they are about Daniel Cameron. Um, and that's kind of how they're basing their vote. I think people are still voting either for or against Andy Bashir and not really for Daniel Cameron at all. Um, he's still kind of existing as this generic Republican. Um, and I, I mean, I just don't think any of these stories really help him to do that, help him to break through um, with the, the exception of maybe the, the, the uh, public safety plan. Um, but I just, you know, that's been in the news for three hours. So we'll see what happens with that as it moves yeah. forward. Yeah. All right, Jasmine. Well, anything else you want to say about Daniel Cameron's campaign? No, I think we have wrapped it up. All right. Well, I did want to talk a little bit about this big story that the Herald Leader, uh, Bill Estep of the Herald Leader, wrote about hemp um, in their newspaper. Uh, it, it's been in several articles over the past week, and it kind of marks the first decade of legal hemp in Kentucky. I think it's the 10th growing season that's kind of we're in the midst of right now. And the upshot of the reporting is mostly that hemp hasn't been quite the savior for Kentucky agriculture as many had hoped it would be. Um, so, you know, 
Jasmine, you're no stranger to the hemp issue. We've talked about it lots of times over the years. Um, and, and we've also talked a lot about the huge increase in production leading to a significant crash in the price. And Mr. Estep does tell that story, the one that we've kind of reported on through the years. But I, I think it's worth reading if you have access to the article. And, and if not, you should you know find a newspaper if you can, because it provides numbers you know, a drop of uh, from $193 million in sales to 2019 down to $43 million in 2021. You know, it's a significant contraction. Uh, and, and this year being, you know, the one of the smallest years for hemp plant authorization in the program's short history. And also another huge figure is that uh, in January 2020, prices hit $0.74 cents. Uh, for hemp and that is a drop of 82% in six months like in the middle of 2019 prices were almost double that so you know just to kind of provide that full context Um, and, and if numbers aren't your thing there are also lots of stories in this piece. He tells the story of the, from the perspective of several farmers from places like Harrison County, Owen County, Clay County, Clark County, which are all agricultural areas in lots of different parts of the state. You know, you've got, you know, the kind of the, the bluegrass area, which, you know, of course grows hemp. And then you've got like South Central Kentucky and you, you have different parts of the, the state that are all kind of were really kind of depending on this hemp crop or really had hope for this hemp crop. And it didn't really work out for a lot of those folks. Um, lots of sep- lots of tragic bankruptcies that are detailed in this article. Um, one interesting insight I did think I I saw in this was kind of about how the crash in hemp prices led to the rise in Delta Eight. Like Delta Eight, it was something that was you know they kind of discovered uh, as like a side effect of the farm bill. And if the market had existed and prices had been there to support. Um, the, the crop for, for its more typical uses or even for regular CBD, then um, then, then maybe we wouldn't have seen the rise in, in Delta 8. But because people were just desperate to find a market for this crop, um, Delta 8 has really taken off. And you see it in – I live here on Barstown Road in Louisville. And if you live in a, in a similar spot across the state, you may see uh, Delta 8 signs all throughout uh, your neighborhood like I do. Um in, 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 case, in case you don't know what Delta 8 is, too, it's a THC that acts similarly to the THC that occurs naturally in, in marijuana, um, except for that it needs to be additionally processed. Um, and, it, and, you know, also the article talks about the role of CBD in, in the hemp market, which it, right now is kind of the market. And that was not the way I'd, I think it was envisioned. There are lots of uses for hemp. Uh, back when the program was first being authorized, you know, you would hear things like, oh, it could be used for toothpaste or rope or like all kinds of different things. And, of course, now it's mostly just used for CBD, which I don't know, uh, is what it is. There's a lot of sadness in this reporting, but there's also several success stories and a lot of hope to go around, as well as you know places in Kentucky where they have built companies on the backs of the legalization of hemp that does still exist. Um, it, it's worth checking those things out. It's not all doom and gloom, so I think it's a very mixed and fair picture of the entire situation. So go read the article if, if you can. I think it's worth seeing the full context. Um, but kind of the reason I wanted to recount this article is because, you know, Ryan Quarles and Jamie Comer, who are the two most immediate uh, secretaries of agriculture in Kentucky, they're mentioned several times throughout the piece. Um, 
and, and also another thing that gets a little bit of a mention is the huge number of acres that were dedicated to hemp in 2019. So those things were mentioned, but I don't think that the article does enough to kind of connect the dots between the way in which the huge increase in hemp allowed by the Office of the Agriculture Secretary, um, you know, Ryan Corals approved 26,500 acres in 2019 uh, versus 66,700 in 2018. So it was like a 300% increase in one year. And that led directly to the crash in prices. Um, I wish that story were a little bit more more well told or dug into i can say it I, you know i just like we were talking about with giving an honest accounting of daniel cameron like it's tough for anybody to take seriously my opinion on ryan corals but i think a journalist um could have dug into that a little bit more how much did the agriculture secretary's increase in approvals lead to the crash in prices i think it's pretty much directly but maybe a journalist writing a story about that could have dug in on that a little bit more and, and given a story that more people could latch on to. Um, that didn't quite happen the way I wish it would have, um, but I do think that that's something out there. So, Jasmine, all that to be said, um, have you checked this out? What did you think about it? And, uh, I mean, what do you think about, like, uh, the way it, it presents Ryan Corals uh, if, if you have checked it out? Yeah, I have read the article, and I thought it was really interesting and you know, I, I kind of like remember all this stuff happening. Like I remember the company Gen Canna and they had like, they built all these like super nice facilities and then they were just gone, you know, like several months later and, and the article kind of talks about their bankruptcies and, and things like that. So it was a really interesting article. Um, but I, I hadn't really thought about, um, the Ryan Quarles and Jamie Comer piece of it until until you brought it up. And I, I think you make a really good point there that um, that would be worth investigating as well. Yeah, or at least, you know, the parallels being explored. Uh, you know, it's going to obviously he approved them and then the price crashed. Uh, that that seems how much of that is an X causes Y. Uh, or not is is something I think that's a little bit more of an open question than I wish it were. Um, yeah, well, anyways, check that out if you want to. Um, here are some quick hits to talk about before we get out of here. So first and foremost, Governor Bashir signed off on the regulations put forth by the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission this week to allow for sports betting in Kentucky. It's going to happen by September 7th, just in time for football season. The governor estimated $23 million in additional revenue. Jasmine, do you plan to open a sports betting account? Yes. Yeah. Who's your first bet going to be on? Um, let's see. It's starting in September, so I'll probably be making some NFL bets. Maybe I'll bet on the Vikings to win the NFC North or something. I don't know. Joe Burrow MVP. You probably get good prices <laughs> on that in, in September. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that is kind of – I mean, that, that's aggressive, you know, win, wanting to get all this done in a few months. Uh, but – you know, uh, it was a bipartisan project. Michael Meredith, Republican of Bowling Green, was there. The governor was there. Um, you know, so it was a nice show of like, hey, we all came together to make something happen. So that that was a, a nice. Yeah, show. and and football season was always the plan. I mean, after the bill passed, um, I remember Damon Thayer saying like, we want to have, you know, we have until December, but we want to have mm -hmm. this ready to go by NFL season. Yeah. All right. I got to figure out. I, I have not even done it like surreptitiously while I was in Ohio. So I've got to figure out how to download all the apps and get things connected. I, 
also how to ex- you know exhibit self control. Everybody exhibit self control. We're gonna have to put a disclaimer at the, at the show, like uh, got to call all these numbers or whatever, like all the other podcasts have. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, next thing up, um, and this is this is a much more important story in my opinion. So Louisville C- Mayor Craig Greenberg has faced some criticism this week regarding his choice to keep the search for a police chief closed off. Um, no finalists are going to be named, and the people who know the candidates have been asked to sign an NDA. Um, however, Greenberg did name the seven people who were helping him make a decision. They include J. Michael Brown, who's the former executive cabinet secretary for Governor Andy Bashir and the uh, Justice and Public Safety cabinet secretary under Governor Steve Bashir. Um, Keturah Heron, who is a state house member from West Louisville. Um, Rebecca Grignan Recker, who is the executive director of the Louisville Metro Police Foundation. That is the group that does a lot of stuff for fallen police officers, police officers killed in the line of duty, etc. Um, Paula McCraney, who is a Louisville Metro Council member. She's your Louisville Council member, right? Isn't that right? Mm-hmm. She's yes. a, a black woman from the Linden area in central Louisville. Corey Shull, who is a member of the JCPS school board member. He's also black. And Ryan Nichols, who is the River City FOP president. That's the police union. Um, so, you know, there has been significant criticism from a lot of different quarters about the secrecy surrounding the search for a police uh, police chair. That That is not... It's not unusual, but other cities have been more open with their search. Um, so all that being said, Jasmine, I mean, what do you think about this? What do you think about the secrecy surrounding the police chief's um, selection? And, and do you think that the mayor naming these folks who are helping him make the decision, does it temper um, whatever disappointment you may feel? How much does that matter to you having these names in front of you? I mean, I am disappointed that it's not public, but I, I, I also kind of see the the downsides of not making it public. Um, just, th- I don't know the additional like pressure that that can bring. Um, so I I understand it, even though I would prefer that it would um, be more transparent. I do think it helps a little bit that the names of of who's involved have been announced because it does seem like a diverse group of individuals. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that that this seven people, I I think it should give a lot of people a little, some comfort. I, I do think whether you're conservative or progressive, like there's somebody on this list for you. Um, and you know, to know that it isn't just the mayor that's going by himself. There were also a significant number of community conversations, uh, around the search for a police officer that took place at libraries across the city. I mean, I heard about those there, there was another article I read today, uh, about how some of the community organizations didn't feel like there was enough of that. Um, and that was kind of an odd story because it seemed like there were and then people weren't checking their email or something i i don't i'm not i don't know i don't want to dig into that um how much the gov the mayor's office needs to ensure that certain groups are there uh if they're not gonna check their email uh that's a tough that's a tough question to answer for sure um i i i i I agree with you like i wish this was a more open process um i wish that there were finalists named but i think you kind of have to make a decision right 
you're either going to have an open process or a closed process. Um, and if you make the decision to have a closed process, you have to do something about the fact that there isn't going to be transparency and you have to be ready to defend that decision. Um, I think the mayor's office has done a good job of defending that decision. And I do think that releasing these names is a good strategy. So while I disagree with the decision to make it as secretive as it has been, uh, and wish that weren't the case, I think that the mayor has done kind of what he needs to do to, to like put people's minds at ease. Although I do think there are a lot of people whose minds aren't at ease, and that's just the price that you have to pay when you make this decision. That's kind of just part of it when you decide to have a closed process. So, um, you know, best of luck as they deal with the fallout from that. Um, and I certainly hope whoever we end up with is somebody who is uh, good. So that will be the real uh, decider for me as to whether or not this process was worth it or not. Okay. Next thing, UPS and Teamsters 89 missed a key deadline to avert a strike last week. While it looked like a deal was imminent right before the July 4th holiday, on July 5th, the deal collapsed. It's really unclear who walked away from the table, but the main upshot is that there's issues that have to be resolved, and there aren't, they aren't resolved. Um, the issues include excessive overtime, two-tiered pay, and I think broadly speaking, just kind of the way that UPS utilizes its part-time workers. The contract ends on August the 1st, and it's going to be tough even if they are, reach a deal in principle to avoid the August 1st kind of deadline. Uh, to, you know, There's a process to get the deal approved by the members, and um, given even if like the union itself says hey we want you to vote for it in order to have all the votes and everything it's going to be tough for them to get that done before august 1st so whether there's a work uh, stoppage or not is kind of up to to that so um it is getting really serious over there and this has the the chance to be one of the biggest strikes like in 50 years or something like that so um you know uh these are serious issues and you know delivery services and getting things packages delivered is big business and growing uh we're getting more and more dependent on that as time moves along so you know this is the time when workers kind of need to straighten their backs and and get what get what's owed to them because they're going to be doing a lot more of this work in the future so uh jasmine anything to say about the ups teamsters 89 uh negotiation now i think you're right yeah you've covered it okay um, last thing. So as, this is another labor thing. So SB7 was a bill that was passed um, in the last legislative session. Not a lot of people talked about it outside of our show. We talked about it a few times. But it's a bill that disallowed some public sector unions from collecting dues through paycheck deduction. Um, it was put in place essentially to, <laughs> I mean, like kneecap JCTA, I think, was basically the idea there. JCTA, the Jefferson County Teachers Association, collects a lot of its money through um, paycheck deduction of its dues-paying members. And uh, so do a lot of other education unions. Uh, that was basically who the bill was for, um, was for uh, education-related unions. Um, the bill exempts other public sector organizations like the fire department and the police union. So those people are still allowed to do paycheck deduction. In the past, this bill had been stopped by the police unions who were pushing really hard on the Republicans not to pass that bill. So they carved them out, which creates a equal protection issue um, because it is basically, you know, I, I don't know, pretty straightforward to me that it is not equal protection if these public sector unions are carved out and those ones are not. I think that the uh, defense is that because of the hazardous nature of their work, 
um, they are not allowed or they, they should be allowed to have a paycheck deduction. I don't know. To me, being a teacher it can be pretty hazardous itself. And also, like, I don't know. That seems like a big deal. Uh, I, I just don't that doesn't really like doesn't really fly with me. Um, Jefferson County Circuit Court Judge Brian Edwards issued a temporary injunction against the bill on July 3rd. So it is currently not being enforced and it will make its way through the uh, through the, you know, the courts as uh, as we move along here. Jasmine, do you remember SB7? Yeah, and and I think I talked about that there there could be a lawsuit and and some issues there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, there was definitely going to be a lawsuit. They would have found some reason, even if it wasn't as straightforward, um, because it's it's a big deal to these folks, um, and having it challenged in court would be important. Um, so, yeah, I think their case is very strong, though. Um, so, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens as we move along there. All right, Jasmine, anything else you want to talk about? No, I think we've covered it. That is it for this week. All right, Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a sporadic newsletter. You can subscribe to at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast Network and the Forward Kentucky Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>